0: Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 95, new camera gear releases with Kyle Bamberger.
1: This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make
0: flicks. Welcome back to the Filming with Josh podcast. If you're new to the podcast, Filming with Josh is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Here on the podcast, we talk about all things video, from script writing and storyboarding to new camera gear releases like we're going to talk about today. So, I want to thank you all for listening in. We also have a Facebook group called Filming with Josh. So, be sure to go to Facebook, type in Filming with Josh, and ask to join the group today. The Filming with Josh Facebook group is a continuation of this podcast and is a place where you can come and see BTS uh, pics of different projects I'm working on. You can post videos, ask for feedback, and even keep up to date with new camera releases that come out, things of that nature. So, be sure to go to Facebook, type in filming with Josh, and ask to join the group today. I'm joined today again by my friend Kyle Bamberger with Modern Legacy. How are you doing, Kyle? Doing good, man. Appreciate you having me back on today. Yeah, this is like your third or fourth podcast, maybe fifth. I don't know. You've been on a few times over the years.
1: Yeah, I think maybe four. Sounds about right. Three or four. Maybe four.
0: Yeah, man, well, your podcasts have always done really well. I guess people are more interested to hear from Kyle than they are Josh, and that's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. Dude, you had an eventful morning
1: too, man. You went out and caught a bass already. I did. I got up early this morning, went out, did some fishing, got a new uh, fly reel, so it was pretty exciting. I think people like to listen to these podcasts, Josh, that I'm on. A lot of times we're talking about gear, so... Pretty much every time we're talking about <laughs> gear. <laughs> we need to do a non-gear podcast, but I pray people wouldn't listen, so I won't join those No, podcasts. they
0: wouldn't. <laughs> 100%. I think I did. It was either a podcast or a post. I can't remember. After 95 sep- episodes, they are start to all start to kind of blend together. But I did do a podcast, I think, recently about why people only care about camera gear because it's super annoying that some podcasts, like really good ones that feature, like my attorney, for example, stuff that I guess I would be interested in, people don't listen to as much as they do the gear ones. It's 100% always the gear ones.
1: I'll give you a plug for that one because I think that that podcast is fantastic uh, with your lawyer on there. Have you listened to that one? Yeah, I listened to it a couple times. It's pretty good. There's a lot of really good information in there. If if you're not big into le- like you know into legal, um, I highly recommend it because it, it even brought up things in my own contracts that I wasn't sure whether or not to have in there. But once I, I listened to that, it was like definitely have to have that in, in <laughs> into the contract after that.
0: Yeah, I feel it's interesting. Like people love talking about gear, but and gear is great. I mean, we're gonna talk about gear today, and I'm excited to talk about gear today. But the the legal stuff for example just taking that for example man that's like a great thing to learn and understand if you're doing this for a living or even as a hobby it just kind of helps you get your ducks in a row I feel like it's super important and everybody should be everybody
1: should be encouraged to learn about that somehow I agree with you there I, it's not it's not the cool it's not the sexy thing it's it's the really boring thing that nobody wants to learn about it's like when you talk to filmmakers about business and doing. The business oh, yeah. side of things. Nobody wants to talk about that. It's it's the boring thing. It's not going out and making a short film, you know. So nobody really wants to do those things, but they're necessary, unfortunately. That's just part of the world we live in.
0: It is, man. But I do understand liking gear and we're gonna get into that today because gear is exciting and we have five products today that we're going to talk about. Are you ready to dive into these? Let's do it. Okay, so these are going to go in really no particular order, except for I will say the very last product we're going to talk about is probably the most interesting. So be sure to stay to the end of the podcast because I think that that is going to be the most interesting product we talk about for sure. But we're going to start with some that just came out today, actually, um, which is September 6th. And the first product I want to talk about is the Format High
1: Tech bloom gold diffusion filters kyle have you had a chance to look at those yet i'm actually on the website right now checking it out because you sent it to me today but i haven't had enough time to really learn much about it so school me a little bit on what what your thoughts are classic did
0: not do his homework so <laughs> format high tech for those of you who don't know they are a company that specializes in making all kinds of filters from screw on filters to matte box filters they make Everything from polarizers, both circular and linear, to um, graduated ND filters to traditional ND filters—they make a wide range of products. I actually have a bunch of Format High Tech four um, by five six five matte box filters because they are uh, ND filters because they're super thin, and I love them because they allow. I think they're called like the Firecrest or something. Do you know the name of? Are they, is that what it is? The Firecrest? Yep. Yeah, they're Firecrest. Yeah, the Firecrest. So I've got those um, two sets of them. I love them because they're crazy thin and they're only two millimeters thick. A traditional matte box filter would be four millimeters thick. And so you can stack two of those NDs into one traditional filter slot, which is why I like them. So it's a very innovative company. They make really cool products. I think I even have a couple of their protective filters for like if you're shooting, um, let say like a dirt bike racing track or something, you want to put that on your matte box in front of your other glass, you know, they just make really cool products. But... One product that they just released today is called the Bloom Gold Filter. It is a diffusion filter. Now, unfortunately, it's only in screw-on filters right now. I am a little surprised by that. I kind of feel like they should come out with this for a matte box. It kind of makes it a hard product for me to buy because I really like using matte box diffusion filters. But basically what it is, is it's called the Bloom Gold because it's named after Philip Bloom. Uh, who most people listen to this podcast probably know who that is. Um, and I have been following Philip for a very, very, very long time. He's probably the main reason I bought my FS7 back in the day. Um, he's also the reason I bought my m 5 back in the day. But I've noticed over the years that Philip loves using diffusion filters. And I've seen him make his own before and even put them that he's made on drones and stuff. So he's kind of tinkered around with his own designs over the years. And, of course, he's used off-the-shelf ones. And... Um, but he f- recently teamed up with Format High Tech to create his own professional line of filters um, where he actually got to kind of work with them to develop what he felt would make a good diffusion filter and then work with their manufacturing facility to actually produce it. And that's how we got the Bloom Gold filters. And they come, I think, in like one-eighth, one-quarter and one-half, I believe. Um, and these filters have gold flakes. So if you know what a black pro mist filter is, they have some black flakes. Whereas a traditional mist filter, for example, would have like white flecks or flakes. This has gold in it. So the idea is it reduces contrast a little. Um, but more than that, what it does is it kind of warms up the shot a little. And on top of that, it's, it helps bloom highlights a little, kind of like a traditional mist filter would or diffusion filter would, and softens skin. So it's kind of like a traditional filter, but it, it warms slightly. And according to Philip, and again, it's a marketing video, but according to him, it reduces contrast the least amount of most of the uh, filters he works with, which I do like. Like, I'm not, I, sometimes I feel like mist filters can reduce contrast too much for my liking personally. I mean, I don't know about your thoughts on that, Kyle. But anyway, that's kind of what the product is. But it's only available in screw-in filters, which is kind of a challenge if you're wanting to use like a variable ND um, because there's no way to like stack. I mean, you could, I guess, stack a variable ND on top of it, but not, you're, you run the risk of vignetting, you know. I kind of just wish they came out with matte box varieties because it's much easier to stack with with a matte box. But anyway, now that you've had a chance to kind of look at it, like give me your thoughts. Like what are your thoughts on this product? I know you like Diffusion, so do I. So give me your thoughts.
1: So yeah, I think looking at I'm I watched I watched through the video here. I it, that's the I think that's the biggest challenge for me too is like all my like if I have any screw on filters they're all Nisi filters which I know that's what you run to and yep. this doesn't pair well with that you know because I have they ha- I can't remember what the name of the system is but you can pop them on and off the Swift system the Swift system that's what it is thank you um, I love that system and. Yeah. I mean, it's nice, but it kind of limits you slightly, and that's why it would be nice if they made this in a four by five six five, you know, filter, so you can drop it into your mat boxes. Because, I'm as I'm watching through this, I tend to lean on the warmer side of things for my, for even for my edits, for my coloring. I I always tend to lean on the warmer side of things, and that's one thing I've actually noticed. With my G Master glass versus, uh, like I, I sometimes will run the Tamron 35 to 150, the Tamron is slightly warmer, and I will gravitate towards that because of that. Um, and I would love to have, and I'm not saying like I want everything to be super warm and nothing, nothing, not everything needs to be that way, but I'm interested because of that, having the gold flex in it like this. I think that you know, giving you that like golden hue, uh, and, and making like maybe something that's more ordinary, more into the, you know, that filmic look. And I hate to use that word because it's so stereotypical, but you know what I'm getting at. Um, I think it's a, it's a really pretty filter. Actually, I, I kind of like, it's a golden ring. I kind of like that look too. I think it's really classy looking. S- so interestingly, they felt like some people
0: might not like it. So they're releasing a black version as well. So the, basically when you say golden ring, for those of you who haven't looked at this product yet, he means that the filters got uh, like the outside of the filter is gold, but the, um, like the actual metal is, but they're released a black version as well, just in case people didn't like that, which I thought was interesting. I've I've not seen a company that comes out with two different versions of a filter like that before.
1: No. And I think a lot of people, I mean, it, it's not quite gold. I don't know exactly what you would call Polar Pro. It's more like a copper or a bronze. It's color. like a copper. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think maybe some people might get this confused with a Polar Pro filter. And I think That maybe, was my thought. I think maybe that's why they would be like, Well, we should do a black version too, because yep. you know, anyone that's using a screw on filter anyways, like you see Polar Pros everywhere now. You know, you see that copper color on the front of tons of lenses. You watch mm. if anybody watches YouTube, you're gonna see it. It's on every video out there. Just about it seems even like even though I hate them. <laughs> Um, so I think Story maybe right I think maybe that's a reason that they came out with another version I think that the gold is just a really classy look though um, so I'm kind of I kind of gravitate towards the gold I kind of like it my challenge with the video
0: and this is not a knock against Philip Bloom because I have already said that I, I really like Philip Bloom and I think he's extremely knowledgeable and I've been following him for a long time because I, I mean you and I've had this conversation off podcast but there's a difference between like YouTube reviewers and then people who actually do this for a living and actually know what they're talking about. I feel like Philip is one of those people. Um, But Philip's grading style, a lot of times a little different than mine. And so when I watch this video back, that's like my only thing is it's in his grading style. So I feel like I can't really tell how much of that is the filter and how much of that is his grading style. I kind of need to see this filter either for myself or in the hands of someone who shoots a more neutral style so i can see the before and after because his style is just so different if that makes sense
1: 100 percent. Yeah, he, he has a very i, I don't want like uh i don't know how i want to say it more of like an, it's almost like a vintage look with lifted blacks a lot yeah yeah and kind of milky almost for sure that's that's a good that's a good way to to say it milky not in a bad way not in a bad way, but it's, it's just different just, than what I do. Right, that's just his style, and I, I do. Style. I do agree with you. I think it's hard to tell because you can see him; he could shoot the same camera and lens that we would shoot, and it would look totally different than how we would grade it. So it'd be like a thousand percent. It's really hard to judge whether how much is you know the grade versus the filter. But I think once once it gets out into the world, we see a few more people that that shoot professionally on it, and seeing the results of it, I would like to see that. I don't know yeah. how much they cost. I've looked at 87 bucks per filter. So, or I'm sorry, that's for the 49 mil. The 82 mil is $140. So, yeah, that's what I
0: was going to say. So I saw that. That's actually not bad though. I mean, my Tiffin uh, Black Pro Mist filters
1: that I have for my map boxes, I paid like four or $500 for those. So, <laughs> Right. I mean, that's, I mean, I think it's crazy how much you can pay for four by five, six, five filters. They're just mm-hmm. ridiculously expensive for what they are. Don't get they me are. wrong. Like they're nice, and you have to have them, and they're necessary evil, but they're just overly priced, in my opinion, for what they are.
0: So let me ask you this: This is, and before we jump off this topic, what? Um, and then I'll give you my thoughts after. But when do you use diffusion in your work? How
1: often do you use it in your work, and um, why do you use it? So diffusion for me, I mean, it, it's it comes across in how I want to tell the story, and and if I'm gonna soften things. So like for an example. We're we're working with a nonprofit, uh, and and we're doing like testimonial videos where they they gift veterans or service contractors with therapy dogs. So in that example, those kind of stories, I'm I'm typically using like a one eighth mist filter. And for me, the reason I'm using that one eighth mist filter is, it really I think it portrays the story well for what we're trying to do. So like for me it's it's softer it's you know it it's as a when you bloom the highlights a little bit like that i feel like I, i like i i'm drawn into the story more it's not clinical you know what i mean it's less clinical it i don't know exactly have the words for how it even makes me feel but like for me that that would be an instance where i want to use it there or if i'm using it on like I don't know, things where I want them to be just not as sharp, not, not as, you know, I don't want it to look as perfect. Right. So like, there are times where I do want that to look like that. Like we'll do like construction stuff. And those examples, I typically don't use it there. And you're like, you're trying to look for this. Say you're doing, you do this too. Like when you do like real estate stuff, um, that wouldn't be something where I would use a mist filter because you're wanting to look at, clean perfect really nicely done you know you're not you're you're typically they don't have imperfections right so you want that to show up well and I want that to be kind of clinical uh, now when I'm telling an emotional story I don't need it to be as clinical I want to be able to just I want to draw into what they're what they're saying and what the story is and not be drawn in by how clinical and how precise my lenses are and typically, you know, I shoot a lot on photography lenses, you know, the G Master lenses in particular with my Sony glass, so or with my Sony bodies rather. And those lenses are really clean, they're really nice, and they're just about as perfect as perfect can come. So I oftentimes don't want to look that perfect. So those are the times that you'll see me use uh, a mist filter over versus just using, you know, no diffusion at all.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm very similar. So like when I shoot for medical companies, um, when I shoot architectural stuff or for home builders whatever, like you said, those are things that need to be clinical. I use a G master glass as well. And, um, I think like for those practices or those types of, of, of projects, it's good to have a clinical look. But then like when I shot the artistic project for the sorority earlier this year, or last year I did a, a project for, um, Texas State University where we did this like COVID-related project and we wanted there to be some emotion. I don't want things to be clinical there. Um, And even when shooting an 8K, that's another time I like to use them is sometimes the 8K and the A1 is like so sharp that it almost can make lines look jaggedy because it's just so sharp. It's got too much detail. And so being able to bump that down a little with diffusion, I think helps. But for me, my favorite time to use it is just for knocking, like my, my absolute favorite time to use it is for knocking a softness into the skin tones. Cause sometimes skin can look so detailed that it, it doesn't look good. And there's just a softness about using diffusion that can help your, your images just appear prettier than if you're going for just a, a straight up clinical look. So I love it for, for anything that's gonna be shooting people Um, And then I also I like bloomed highlights to an extent, but I don't like overly bloomy. Um, So I'm a little different than you, even. So you're you you tend to stay on the light side of things. So you you typically run like a one eighth, correct? Black Pro Mist, right? I run a one sixteenth most of the time. I have one eighth, but most of the time I run one sixteenth because I like I personally like to just soften the skin slightly bloom bloom the highlights, but not so much so that you notice it. Because sometimes people slap on like a one half diffusion filter and it's so noticeable that I almost feel like they smeared something on the front of their lens. I don't like that. I think if you're like portraying something very unique for some very special reason, you might can get away with that. But for just like everyday shooting, it's too much. So I liked it a one sixteenth up to a one eighth. The more you zoom into diffusion, the more pronounced it is. So 1 eighth is good if you're using it on like a wider lens for me, one sixteenth on tighter glass. That's kind of where I live. Um, but I typically use mine with a map box so I can stack filters. So I would like to try these out, but
1: I kind of need to wait for them to come out with a map box 4x565 version. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it would be nice to have, but if I'm using... I don't know. I, I'm trying to come up with a scenario where I would just screw this on the front of it, and it would have to be a scenario where I'm not using a matte box, but it also don't need more ND. Like maybe like on the FX6, just screwing this on the end of the lens when I'm using the internal NDs. Mm-hmm. Possibly you could use it there, but then. But even then, like, what if you need to shoot wide open
0: outside in the middle of the day? Sometimes the FX6's ND isn't strong enough for that.
1: Yep, and then I'm, and then in which case I'm, I'm typically throwing on my four stop ND uh nisi on the front which means i can't screw this on i guess you could screw it on and then screw the four stop onto that but i I don't want to do that either so yeah i mean it's a it's a very i mean i'm probably going to use this outside a lot of times most of my work's outside i don't do a lot of like corporate talking head stuff so a lot of my stuff's outside i'd probably be using it outside so in which case you might want more ND. So I don't know. It's kind of an awkward place for me. I don't really know when I would use a screw-on filter like this, but it would just be nice if everything was just cohesive, but nothing is ever cohesive.
0: Yeah. No, nothing is ever cohesive. Well, if they come out with a 4x5, 5 version, which if this is popular, I, I could see that happening, then I'll-, I'll likely give it a shot. But I kind of need that to happen before I can try it. But otherwise, it's a pretty cool product. Um, I like it, man and I'd be interested to uh, see what more people who grade their work a little differently
1: than Philip do with it. Likewise, yeah, I think it's gonna be, it's a it's a cool new product that's out, I'd love to see more about it. Well, let's jump into our, our next
0: product, which is the, also released today, GoPro Hero
1: 12 Black. Now, I believe you have not read up much on this yet, right? No, I, I didn't even know this came out until you sent to me right before this. <laughs> uh, podcast here no that's perfect because it gives me a chance to tell you about it on podcast
0: so you can learn about it on podcast everybody else so for those of you uh listening as well as kyle here is what the gopro hero 12 black is it looks to me like it has the same sensor that we've come across to over the last couple generations which is a little annoying i kind of would love to see a little bit larger sensor but i digress It's $400. It still records 5.3K footage at 10-bit color. I don't know if it's 10-bit 420 or 10-bit 422, but here's what I do know. For the first time ever, GoPro has released their own log profile called GP Log, and they also have released a LUT for it. Now, I don't know if you can monitor the log footage in the GoPro with the LUT or not, but either way, they have a LUT that you can download. Uh, Of course, you can use other things like Color managed in Resolve. I'm sure Resolve will come out with a color managed profile for, for this at some point. But uh so the, the log profile is interesting. Uh the 5.3k can be recorded up to 60 frames per second, uh 4k up to 120, 2.7k up to 240. I think that's kind of been consistent to what we've had in the past. Um uh, the log is like one of the biggest things to me. It also is supposed to have two times longer battery runtime. So it uses the same batteries as before. Um, and supposedly you can get up to 70 minutes on 5.3 K 60, 95 minutes at 5.3 K 30. And that's with the hyper smooth stabilization on, which this is now hyper smooth 6.0. Supposedly it's a lot better. I got to be honest. I watched GoPro's launch video and I can still kind of tell sometimes when the, when you see people like snowboarding or mountain biking, you can kind of see the, stabilization working because it does warp the image slightly so it's not perfect but you know if you're mounting it on top of a car or something could be useful um here's an interesting feature you can monitor and record audio using apple wireless airpods now which is completely out of left field never saw that coming but i have airpods in right now while i'm Recording this podcast to hear you on the Zoom call. And I could literally take these AirPods and connect them to the GoPro, and I could use it to either monitor audio or even to capture audio I'm saying or even just communicate with the GoPro, like GoPro on, GoPro record. Pretty interesting. Um, another thing that it does is it's supposed to have a pretty new, like revamped HDR. Uh, mode that captures multiple frames at once kind of like the c300 does and stacks them together to create an hdr image Um, the example they showed was inside of a of a car and you saw outside the window and the hdr mode you could see good exposure in the car and outside the window kind of interesting they're really pushing the eight by seven footage in uh in in this one and being able to shoot vertical without having to turn the camera vertical They also have a new lens mod 2.0, which is, uh, to give you a super wide field of view. um, and a few other things, but the biggest thing to me is actually not anything I've said yet. One of them is the bottom of the GoPro has a quarter 20 mount now. So it's got your traditional go folding GoPro mounts, but when they fold up in between them is a quarter 20, uh, hole, which is brilliant. I'm super glad they came out with that. To me, that opens it up to a lot more mounting options, which there's already a ton, but now you have even more options because quarter 20 is everywhere. And then beyond that, they also have included internal time code where you scan a QR code on the GoPro and can get time code and sync all the GoPros via time code. Now, here's what I don't know. I don't know if that time code can be synced with anything else. That is to be determined. But at the very least, if you're working with three or four GoPros, for example, you can scan them all with a QR code and have them all run time code so they all sync and post, which could be useful for certain things.
1: Anyway, it is available in October and retails for 400 bucks. Interesting. So a couple things really stick out to me there is, number one is having their own log profile. I think having a log recording mode on this is great and super clutch yeah i mean i can't remember it's like gopro flat or neutral F- or, gopro flat something like yeah. that you
0: go to their Pro Tune mode or whatever yeah
1: yeah and you have to shoot gopro flat and i shoot everything gopro flat now and i, I do I, too. I don't use so i have the hero 11 black now and i don't use it very rarely do i use it it's it's like when i need to just stick a camera somewhere and i may use a shot or may not use a shot that's the only time i ever see myself using this most of the time in my professional work now my personal stuff i do a lot of pheasant hunting and i film all my pheasant hunts uh because i like to watch back and see i have a a newer dog so last year was our first season together so i like to watch the footage back to see you know how she did and that kind of thing So, I I do use a GoPro a lot for that purpose. Every time I hunt, I put it on my head and wear it on a head mount and, you know, walk through the field and hunt. So, every time I go out, I do that. Now, there are a few things that that this one does have that, like, the log, that's a big one. I might even upgrade just for that alone. The quarter 20 is big to me. Um, I never got into, like, the lens mod thing, like, modding the lens and putting... The different lenses on there that's not huge for me cool feature um, two times longer runtime. that is interesting to me as well the fact that it says you can operate almost twice as long as what the 11 is is crazy i think the main problem that we need to address with gopros is overheating these things yeah. all, all the newer ones they overheat all the time that's all they do yeah. and And I don't typically, for that purpose, I will not run mine at the 5.3K because it's just so heavy and intensive on the camera that it overheats. So so I run everything at, like, 4K60. And the different, like, aspect ratios, like, I totally get a lot of people that are using this, they're probably using it for social purposes, things like that. And so you see a lot of, was it, like, 8x7 or whatever the you know, whatever that aspect ratio is that they're pushing. Cause it gives you the ability that you can, you can crop in still you do your 16 by nine if you want to, or you could do a nine by 16 or you can do a, yeah, sc- that's a big, that's one of their big selling points. Yeah, for sure. I and mean, I get that. Like, I think that's great because then you can run, you know, you could potentially frame it however you want when you're done. You, you have a lot of flexibility there in post. And I think that's great. I think it gives you a lot of ability there. So, I mean, I, I like that actually, not that I would ever do anything with mine, but I think it's kind of a cool feature. Um, if, if this one doesn't overheat, I think that's probably the biggest thing for me because I don't use it for photos. I don't, I mean, I'll use it again. Like I strap one on my head and go pheasant hunting or I'll use it as a crash cam or something that I can stick. Like if we're going to do like crop spraying, I can put it on the wing of a plane, you know, things like that. That's where I'm using this camera. But if it's going to overheat, you can't trust it. You know, you're not, you don't don't know if you're going to get the shot. So if it's not going to, if this one doesn't overheat and it gives you twice as long of a run time, that's a big deal to me. I mean, the wireless time code, that's a cool feature. I just don't know if you can sync it up with other time codes yeah. outside of that. Like, if you had a technical sync going, can you sync up this camera? Or is it only syncing multiple GoPros together you know, at one time? So I'm under the impression...
0: That you can only sync up multiple GoPros. And last year, so I'm like you in that in my in my personal work. Sometimes I I'll take a GoPro like fly fishing with me, and I'll put it on the boat. And if I hook into a monster fish or something like a carp, if I have it on my kayak, I might hit a button on my phone or on my wrist or whatever. Uh, if I have the little what do you call that little remote? I don't know wrist remote. Yeah, the GoPro remote. Just to start, and maybe get the the fight on camera just for fun. It's just for me. To send to you basically uh or if i was like duck hunting i have a couple i have hero tens but i might like put one on a pole behind me in my kayak because i got kayak mounts that goes over my head to film like my spread and then maybe one facing me in the front of the kayak to get me shooting the ducks and again it's just for me to share with my friends um in my professional work i don't use them all that much but i do sometimes i will mount, i've mounted them to ha- airplanes before um i mounted one there was this i did this commercial for this guy had this like machine that floated in the water and it was like a it was like a a tractor on on the water like a boat tractor and he used it to clean ponds and i stuck a gopro on the bucket of that so when he dumped into the water to pull up water hyacinth i got all that on camera it's kind of cool so i use it for stuff like that you know or mounting it to a car wheel and like getting mudslinging on working on a farm or something that's where i use it my challenge though is that you like you said they overheat and I constantly lose connection with them. I'm mount them in a plane and I'll be in the plane and I can't get it to start and stop because it loses connection. And what are we are going to have, we have to pull the plane back down to freaking start the GoPro? I mean, come on, are you serious? So if, I, I think the quarter 20 holes, awesome. The 10 bit log is a huge step up. If you watch their video where they show the 10 bit log in use and you can see the before and after, ignore the after and just look at the before. You can see how flat it is and how much um, dynamic range is there. I'm interested in that. Um, those are the th- those are the things that I think are interesting to me that stick out the most, but it all boils down to, is it going to work? Is it going to be reliable or is it going to disconnect constantly? Like mine never is connected. And is it going to overheat? Cause honestly, I'm more interested in that than I am anything else at this point. I would
1: agree with that. I, if, if it doesn't overheat, that's a, that's a huge factor to me. And I, that's a worthy upgrade to go from the 11 to the 12. Now I, you know, in the instances where I do use it for work, I I can't even trust it to be remotely connected to to no. work. I have to physically start recording, and it got to the point like in the cool feature that they came out with on the eleven black that I was super pumped about was cash recording. Yeah, I remember this. And I was I was so excited because I don't want to walk around. And so what I did I bought a five hundred twelve gig card, okay, to put in in the GoPro, which is crazy. But I went out and I was like, I was so excited because you know you don't know when when the, like a wild pheasant is gonna flush, right? And this is just for my personal stuff. And you could do the same thing if you're doing like fish jumping or whatever. You don't know when it's gonna happen, right? Well, I'm like, okay, well, cash recording is gonna be awesome because it can it can do like a 30 second cache. Well, I'm like, cool. I'll keep it on my head, and then as soon as I pull up to shoot, I'll hit the record button. I have 30 seconds prior to that, and then it can it'll continue recording. Well. That cash, you know, you might go for a four-hour pheasant hunt or something, or whatever. It only that cash will only like keep the camera awake for 20 minutes. Once that 20 minutes is gone, then the camera goes back to sleep, and you hit the record button, and it starts recording from the moment you hit it. And so that that burnt me twice, and I'm like, I couldn't figure out what was going on. Well, I started doing a bunch of research. And I'm like, well, 20 minutes doesn't do me anything. It doesn't do me any good at all. I need more than 20 minutes. Like, let that thing stay on until the battery's dead definitely yeah right. exactly you know and that's what i would want but it doesn't do that it only does like 20 minutes so what i ended up having to do that's this is why i bought the big card Is i hit the record button and i just let it record until the battery stops and i had to turn the beeps on so when it started beeping that's when i knew the camera was dead and i would stop in my tracks take the battery out put a fresh battery in and start recording again and you can record a whole day doing that. And that's it's crazy to have to do that. You know, and I would try to like at, at the end of something happening that I wanted, I would cut my clip so I knew where to find it in that clip. But it's just crazy. I'll have eight hours of footage to have three shots that I want. That's absurd. Yeah it's stupid. Give me a good cash recording option.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand that. I mean like the FX6 obviously has cash recording. It's amazing. I use it all the time for for capturing moments when you don't know when something's gonna happen but you, you don't want to record all day. GoPro kind of as a little bit of a false advertising that they have that. And I think it's interesting that they never mentioned the overheating. I would have, I actually would have been impressed if they were like addresses overheating or whatever, or
1: minimizes overheating. I think the fact that they don't mention it makes me feel like it probably still overheats. I think that was the biggest complaint, like looking at the hero 11 when I bought it and, you know, people coming from the 10, they were like, well, hopefully the 11 doesn't overheat like the 10 did. And I, I'm reading reviews and it's like, overheats 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 and it's like well there were enough new features for me to be like ah, it's probably worth buying before right. that i had the eight before that and i was like i was gonna get the 10 because i typically will wait every other that's and, what i do yeah and i'm like you know maybe the 10 and then everyone's talking about the 10 overheating and i'm like well maybe the 11 won't then i'll just because i don't use it that often enough to be like i have to have the new one exactly well, the 11 it does overheat so, I mean, most time I'm like pheasant hunting, so it's cold out so I don't have to really worry about it too much but when I've used it in, well, I live in Texas, so it's a problem um yeah yeah I mean when it's when it's warmer <laughs> out, I've used it a few times when it's warmer and it overheats every single time yeah, super annoying well,
0: it's an interesting release I think the quarter twenty hole in the bottom is awesome. I think that the the idea of using wireless headphones—I don't know what I would ever use that for—but it's cool technology. I'd like to see other camera companies uh, incorporate that. I and think, uh, and then
1: and and then the log. Go ahead. Yeah, I think the cool thing about that would be like if if you're vlogging. Um, I think if if you are a vlogger, the the potential would be like you could use that as your mic if it's not windy, right? You know, mm-hmm. you could have your AirPods in and you could use that. You don't have to buy another mic. It's another it's a kind of an inexpensive way to to do a vlog if you want to do that. And I could see it for that. Like I don't know when I'm ever like monitoring my audio on a GoPro. Go <laughs> I have mounted tentacle syncs to my GoPro
0: before for time code, but that's about as far as like like that's just so I can sync with whatever I'm recording the audio on or with other cameras. But that's like as far as I'm gonna go with doing audio on a GoPro. For sure. let's talk about the next product that is the sony 16 to 35 g master 2 2.8 version 2 that came out
1: like a week or so ago kyle give me your thoughts on that product so i have been waiting for this lens right with the update of the 24 to 70 and the 70 to 200 having the external aperture rings being lighter um sharper overall and just more compact in general i think it's a great i think it's a great upgrade and it's been one we've been waiting for for seems like 2 years now. It's probably not been that long, but it's at least been a year that we've been waiting for an upgrade for this lens. Not that it needs it because I mean, I use I use my 16 to 35 a lot. It's a great gimbal lens. It's a great I if I need something wide, it's something that's really versatile. I can throw that on there. It's it's also really great if you're looking for a super minimalist setup like I can go with the sixteen to thirty five and the Tamron thirty five to one fifty, and I can shoot a ton with those two lenses because you're covered from sixteen to one fifty, all at f two point eight, and I mean that opens a lot of doors. I mean that covers majority of what your work is, and so like if I'm doing a super minimalist setup, those two lenses get the job done, and so I've been using the twenty four to seventy and the seventy two hundred a lot, and I love that external aperture ring, love it. And not having to do the step with the camera anymore, like being able just to, you can easily adjust it. And and there's multiple times where you know you're going from like a darker scene to a brighter scene where you can just kind of, you know, rotate that aperture ring really easily. And you don't notice, you know, there's not that step that you see when you're, you know, adjusting it with the camera. And you don't have to rely on something auto. I totally agree. So I think that's a great, that's a great option. I, it's smaller than the the 16 and 35 now the only thing this is the only problem i have with it and you're going to know what the problem is already because we've talked about this a little bit but it does not have image stabilization that's the problem i have with it (laughs) well let me start
0: by saying this when i first switched to sony uh lenses I've been shooting Sony most of my career, but I used to rock Canon lenses because Sony didn't have the G Master glass yet. I did have Sony A-mount glass back in the day. So I had originally started with A-mount Sony glass, but when I switched to Canon L, I got used to a certain level of quality. When Sony came out with their G Master glass, I started switching over, and to be honest, some of their lenses I was not super excited about. Like I felt like the Canon 24-70 to L2 was so sharp and, and so Clean and had such nice flares, but the 24 to 70 G Master version one was very soft in comparison. I never liked that lens the way I liked the Canon. The 7200 Sony, it was okay, but like the Canon L2 and L3 7200 smoked it, I thought. So when I switched to Sony, I was kind of disappointed at first with some of their G Master lenses. The 16 to 35, though, was good. It was solid. It had a great image. It was super sharp. Um, I think it came out after the 2470, 7200, which might be part of the reason why the optics were improved. It was one of the only ones I was really happy with. The other I I wasn't super stoked about is 100 to 400. It has a nice image, but the focus is not linear. It's speed driven, which is very hard to pull focus with a speed driven focus ring. It's almost impossible. Image quality wise, it's great. Pulling focus sucks on that lens. But when they started coming out with like the 2414, the 35.14, the 512, 514, the 135, you know, 18, dude, those lenses changed everything in the Sony lineup because they had the external aperture ring. They had crazy good optics, and they were built on a really slim lightweight profile, finally tapping into the benefits of mirrorless. And then of course they started finally redoing the G Master uh zoom line. So we got the 24728. Which uh, version two, which is freaking amazing. It is so much lighter than the version one. And I remember I, I said I was disappointed in version one because the Canon smoked it in terms of IQ. Well, this new one smokes the Canon. I mean, it's like, it's the best 2470 I've ever worked with. And the external aperturing, like you said, is incredibly useful for video. And then, of course, you've got the 7200 version two, which is the best 7200 I've ever touched. And so we've been waiting for them to change to 1635. We, the optics were already good but it was the design of the of the lens we were excited about. So now we have it. External aperture ring, smaller, lighter body, not a ton smaller and lighter, but a little bit. Interestingly, it only changes 10 millimeters in length when you zoom with this lens. Whereas the previous one zoomed a lot further, the, the lens barrel reached out a lot further. So if you balanced it on a gimbal, the balancing position would change more. This one's going to be a better gimbal lens because the front of the lens doesn't, change as much when you zoom in or out. So it's gonna be a better gimbal lens. And uh, and interestingly enough, even though the optics were good in the past one, it's even better in this one. It has a better minimum focusing distance so you can get closer to objects with a wide angle lens, which creates a really interesting perspective. I can't wait to get it. Uh, I haven't pre-ordered mine yet, but I do plan to grab it. Um, To me, there's only two lenses left that I want Sony to fix now. The 100 to 400 needs to be replaced with one with an external aperture ring and a linear focus. Uh, maybe make it a little smaller and lighter, and then they need to replace the eighty-five G Master with a more modern one that's smaller, lighter, and better optics uh, and better AF motor. So once they once I pick up the sixteen thirty-five, those are the only two G Master lenses. I, I'm I'm still waiting on is the 485.
1: Yeah, I honestly I still use. So I tried out the I I rented the eighty-five one four the current G Master lens, and I own currently own the eighty-five one eight Sony lens. And in my opinion, the 8518 is better than the 8514 that's out there right now. It is. And like the 8518, the focus motor is quiet. It's fast. The auto or the the manual focus is pretty good. It's not perfect. It's pretty good though. Um, And I feel like for the price of what the 8514 is, it is not worth the price anymore and when you compare it's almost
0: unusable at 1.4 it's pretty soft and has has some
1: issues with like chromatic aberration stuff wide open correct and i it's like 85 1.8 lens at 1.8 versus the 85 1.4 at 1.8 it's like it's almost it's pretty close. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say... But with quieter autofocusing motors. C- correct. And that they're, they're silent on the 1.8 lens. Because the 85 G Master is crazy loud. It's it like, does. <laughs> right. That was the problem I had with it. I'm like, I can't use this for video. So it would be a pointless no. purchase for me. So I've, I've continued right. to own the 85 1.8. And for the price, I think it's one of Sony's best lenses out there. I think it's phenomenal. That and the 35 1. 8 lens, those two lenses are phenomenal quality for the money. Um, I, but... If they update the 85 14 to a newer version, I'd have to probably jump on that because I like the 85 focal range a lot. I do too. I have the 135,
0: but I will trade that in for the 85 so that I have a 24-35-50-85G all in G Master. Right now, I have a 24-35-50-135. 135 is a great lens, but I use the 7200 more than I use it, so I'd rather swap that out for the 85, which I'll use a lot, especially for interviews. Uh, for second cam- camera for interviews and and for portraiture photography, great great focal range. But they'll come out with a new one. I'm surprised they haven't yet. They've been rumoring it for years, but it just hasn't come. But it's coming at some point. Mm-hmm. But they're they're really rounding out their their lenses really nicely right now. Agreed. I think they have some of the best lenses in the game. Speaking of having some of the best lenses in the game, this leads us to our fourth out of five products, which is the new Cook SP3 prime lenses. Now off podcast, I told you I have some new thoughts on this. You said you had some new thoughts as well. But before we get into our new thoughts, let me tell viewers or listeners or other what these are. This is a five lens set made by Cook. If you don't know what Cook is, it's C-O-O-K-E, kind of like you're cooking, but with an E at the end. Um, and Cook is a long, has a very, very long history uh, of creating uh, cinema lenses used for really, really big projects. Like I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe Cook lenses were used on like the Wizard of Oz, which is the very first color production in in history of, of cinema. So that's how far back they go, right? Uh, Ansel Adams shot his photography on Cook lenses. Like Cook's is a big name, but they're very expensive lenses. You're going to spend a lot of money getting the Cook look, as people call it. And Sometimes I like the Cook look. Sometimes I don't. I, I, I Sometimes Cook lenses can have cat's eye bokeh. I'm not the biggest fan of cat's eye bokeh. Um, these new lenses have round bokeh on, in the center and cat's eye on the edge. But the big thing about this is Cook lenses, like I said, are very expensive. But this five lens set has a 25 T24, a 32 T24, a 50 T24, a 75 T24, and a 100 millimeter T24. And they're made in Sony E-mount, which is unheard of because Cook lenses are almost always in PL mount. And if you want to use them on an E-mount camera, for example, or an RF camera, you have to use an adapter. They're smaller and lighter than any other Cook cinema lens on the market. These are some of the smallest, lightest lenses, cine lenses I've ever seen. Like the heaviest one is like a pound and a half. They, They weigh anywhere from a pound to pound and a half. And they have Cook Cook quality optics and coatings, but in these small mirrorless lens bodies, and they are $4,500 per lens, or you can buy the entire set for $21,300 and something dollars, which is unheard of. If you compare that to some of the other Cook lenses, it, it's unheard of. And this series is based on the Cook Pancro series of, of lenses, which kind of have a vintage look. Because Cook has a variety of lenses. And the Pancro's typically start their retail price right now at 12000 per lens. So if you buy a five-lens set, you're, you're dropping $60,000. The fact that you can get five of these for 21300 something dollars, literally a third of the price, and get them in a small mirrorless-style body that's a pound to pound and a half in, in weight is tremendous. And if you buy the five-lens set, it comes with... hard case and rf mounts that you can user swap the lens to rf so let's say you're a sony shooter but you want to rent um a red v raptor for a shoot you can physically yourself if you buy or rent this set you can swap the mounts from e mount to rf yourself user swappable so you can now put those same lenses on on a canon camera or a red rf mounted camera which is crazy. They're going to be coming out with uh, additional mounts for the uh, Leica L uh, line of lenses as well as the, um, I, I believe there's coming out with an M mount as well. So there's some other mounts coming out, but it's very interesting product to be able to get the cook look for $21,300. I think that there will be plenty of Sony FX shooters and red shooters who will buy these. And I also think these will be hot ticket um, rental items. If you look at the pictures on like news shooters website, you can see what it looks like on like an FX six. Um, I I've seen, uh, images of these on like B and H on like an FX three. I mean, these are tremendous lenses and they have full manual focusing, uh, capabilities. They have uh, an external iris ring, like we just um, talked about. I do want to talk a little bit about some of that here in a second. Um, and they have uh, really pretty optics. They're just great overall lenses. And the fact that you can get the cook look for 21 grand for a full set of lenses is absolutely insane. Um, so Kyle, kind of like walk me through your thoughts. I, we both had some initial thoughts. I have some updated thoughts. Walk me through where you are with these lenses and why you think these are a big deal or maybe aren't a big deal.
1: Yeah, so number one, if you've watched anything on TV or any movies, you've seen Cook. I mean, Cook has been around since, like, I believe 1893 or something. So, like, one of the older lens manufacturers out there. So, I mean, like, The Wizard of Oz, yeah, that was a huge one that was shot um, on this. That was the first, like, Technicolor film, I believe. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, Breaking Bad, Narcos, like, a, a lot of things people have seen all are shot on Cook. So Cook is a very, it's a very unique look and it's something that people are accustomed to in, in television or film. Like you've seen the Cook look. And to put this in perspective real quick, like
0: I'm on B&H, like I, here's a 135 Cook 30 grand for one lens.
1: Correct. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like they they make very expensive lenses. And I think, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the big thing for me. Number one is like, I, I find it kind of strange that Cook, decided to come out with a set like this because they they've been known their their quality has been the like we're gonna do you know twenty thousand fifteen thousand thirty thousand or forty thousand dollar lens you know we're talking like hundreds of thousands of dollars for a set you know if you're looking at a forty thousand dollar lens a five lens set you're looking at 200 grand for a set of lenses so for them to come out with like a smaller mirrorless mount set of lenses in the pancro line is like I find it to be kind of weird. Um, I mean, I I think I don't think it's a bad move. I think they're going to sell well because of the, the you know, people want the cook look. And it's, it's kind of like, I hate to even say it, but like when people buy a red, you buy a red because of the name, right? Like you're going to buy a lot of people are like uh, red is the best. And when people, people that don't know video, well, even people that do know video, but people that don't know video well. They may know what a RED camera is. So when they see RED, they're like, oh, wow, that's expensive and good. And I think that's what these Cook lenses can be for people. I agree. Because they they
0: definitely have the big yellow badge right there on the side where it says Cook.
1: Right. And so you buy this and it's something truly unique because Cook doesn't, you know, most people aren't buying Cooks. You're going to rent Cooks. You're going to rent it, yeah. It, it makes no sense. And, I mean,
0: unless you're... Even only, the like, Pancro line at $12,000 lens, it's still sixty grand for a set. I mean, that's still a lot of money.
1: Most people aren't going to buy that. Right. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to, like, come up with why they would do this. And other than, like, you know, everything that's in this particular line, you know, coming out with an E-mount, an RF mount down the line, I think you said L-mount. They're going to come out with an L-mount, potentially. <laughs> Um, I think that's super unique. So if if this lens
0: says, well, it's one lens, but all the mounts are interchangeable. interchangeable. So you only have to buy right. one set and
1: then swap them out, which is which is cool. And I think that's, I think it's going to be something, you know, being super lightweight. I mean, I don't know. I'm interested in. It. I'm intrigued by it for sure. The fact that like you're, you know, they're they're very. Um, symmetrical across the lineup too so like your follow focus and your iris pools like they can you can set up your follow focus motors so everything lines up really well i think that's a great move and it doesn't surprise me with cook because of the quality of what they stand for like that makes sense they they would do something like that and they should do things like that the one thing i do feel like they are missing is a wide angle in this set I agree. And like a 25 mil is wide but I feel like maybe adding a 16 or an 18 mil in that. I heard a rumor that they've been working on an
0: 18 mil in the traditional pancrea line. And the thought was once they nail that, that they'll probably release a similar version in their uh, in this line at some point.
1: Yeah, I could I could see that making a lot of sense to add that to the kit. You know, somewhere... Oh, by the way, we didn't mention this. These are full frame lenses. Yes, yes. I think that's an important thing to say because not all Cook lenses are full frame. These are full frame. Yeah, and so, I mean, the the other, like, and I get why it is, but it's a T2.4 lens across the, the set. I wish they were faster. Like, I, I feel like T2 would have been a better sell, but I get it for the size that you want to make these lenses and the weight you want to make them and the price you want to make them to continue to, like, maintain the same quality of look that you have across your line. I get it why you made them T2.4. So there's going to be a lot of haters out there with this. Let's start with that too. Like people that are traditional cook PL mount lenses, like you're shooting on the original cook Pancro's. You're going to be a hater of this because now you've, you've given people a barrier of entry, much smaller to get into a cook set of lenses. And I think there'll be a lot of haters because of that, because they felt, and and I've read this and I reason I know this is I read this in forums people are mad about it because they wanted, you know, like it's it's hard to get into it. Like even to rent a set is extremely expensive. And for most of my work, it doesn't make a lot of sense. There are some like, you know, anthem type work that would make sense to rent them, but I've never personally rented them. I've been on set with them before and we've used them on a shoot, but I've never personally rented them for my own personal projects before. Just because of the price. I mean, it just costs a lot of money for what it is. Now, I think Having this set, I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to move on to shooting on Cook now. Because even if you don't buy it, the cost to rent this is going to be much cheaper than what it was before. And so there's a lot of people out there now that are mad about them releasing this. Or I think if they're not mad about it, they're going to be like, this is the stupidest thing ever. Why would Cook do this? I think they're going to say that. But the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of people that shoot on mirrorless cameras today you know and across the e-mount line you could literally shoot this on a venice because the e-mount is underneath the pl mount on the sony venice so you could literally have this on the front of a venice not that you would do that you probably would just rent the original if you have that kind of budget you're probably going to rent original set of cook lenses anyways but you could mount this as a really tiny little setup on the front of a sony venice and you have a really compact lens setup you know i think a lot of people are going to be mad about that but I think it's it's a good move because th- what this is going to do, and I hope this does, is pushes a lot of other cinema lens manufacturers to push to make things a little bit cheaper. And with cheaper stuff, though, creates more um, competition for all of us. I'm aware of that. You know, and that's no different than, you know, the Sony FX6 and what it's capable of doing and the image it can produce for $6,000 is incredible. You couldn't do that five years ago, it would have taken you triple that amount of money to get what you can get out of the FX6 today. You know, and, and maybe in three or four more years, you might have an FX1 and it's a tiny little camera and it does triple what the FX6 does today. And we're like, why is it like this? You know, but I think it's good though, because competition just elevates all of us and it's going to make us all better. So I'm I'm happy with it. I think a lot of people are mad about it or I think that it's a stupid move on Cook's part, but I think it's a smart move because they're going to they're going to sell a lot of these, I think. So, I have a lot of thoughts here. Are you ready for this? Let's hear I, it.
0: This is I've got a lot. So, first off, I read where the CEO stated in an interview that the reason why Cook did this was because that he re, they realized collectively that the market had changed and that there are more capable cameras at lower price points today that are pushing the image quality a lot higher than what was capable in cameras at their current prices today previously. The fact that you, I mean, he didn't say this, but I'm just saying it's the fact that you can buy like a $10,000 camera body and produce images that would have smoked a $50,000 camera six, seven years ago is is insane. So they recognize that the market has shifted and they wanted a product that could work in in that new market, which I think is smart. It does run a little bit of a risk if people produce poor quality images. I've said this before that I've seen people will produce like amazing content on the FX9 over and over again, but I see a lot of not so good footage on the FX6. And you might look at that and think the FX6 isn't a good camera, but really it's just it's more affordable. So people who don't know what they're doing as much are buying it. And that's the content you're seeing. Whereas the only only people buying the FX9 for the most part are more experienced DPs or cam ops. So that's why their footage tends to look better. So you look online and you're like, ah, the FX9 is better than the FX6. But a lot of times it's just, it's in the hands of more experienced people. I think you're going to see some of that here. People who are renting or buying the more expensive lens set are going to typically be using it on productions where there's great lighting, there's a great director, there's a great um, uh, team that are staging things. And so the images are naturally going to look amazing where these are going to be more affordable for people to throw on their FX6 or FX3 for rental price and shoot a music video on it and it may not look as good. And because of that, I think it is a little risky for Cook because it could look bad sometimes if in the wrong hands. And you are going to be putting it in the hands of people that might rent it who don't quite know what they're doing. So I think that's a risky endeavor on Cook's part. Another thought I had is I saw a guy on YouTube in a comment on their CVPs video, which is a a good video to watch. They were very upset because they had invested over 60 grand in the original Pancro's classic line. And they were so mad because they they bought that line to rent out. And they are upset that this disrupts their rental market. What I think too bad, like, What's Cook supposed to do? Protect your rental investment? Like I, I think I I, I kind of rolled my eyes at that, but I have seen some people upset about that. Here's my other thoughts. These lenses are very consistent. They they worked really hard. If you watch the CVP video, you can see comparison of how consistent these are with the larger original Pancro's line. So you mentioned the Venice probably would use the original Pancro's, right? If someone's shooting on a, on a Venice, that's true but maybe they want a B-cam shot like in a cockpit of an airplane for Top Gun, and they could stick like an FX3 up there for a shot and put the small compact lens in there and have a shot that's consistent with the Pancrost that's being used on the Venice. I think that's very intriguing. Plus, the Venice has attachments that allow you to run just a small portion of the of the Venice, which is basically the sensor and the lens mount. I think this could be a cool option for, for mounting that small portion of the Venice somewhere um, with these small compact lenses while still staying consistent with the Pancro's line. If you look at all of the five of these lenses side by side and shot after shot, they're very consistent throughout, even with the lens flares, the color. So no matter whether you're using the 24 or, or 32 or all the way up to the 100, they're very consistent, I think, for commercial work for us. That's going to be huge. You could shoot it. You mentioned brand anthems. You could shoot a brand anthem on all five of these lenses and all your shots, no matter which focal length you use, are going to look great. So I think this is a, a really interesting proposition. I hope it pushes other manufacturers to come out with lenses similar to this. It reminds me when Fujinon released the MK line for the Sony FS7 and FS5. I always wish there was a full frame version of that. These are not... Zooms the way the Fujinon Cine Zooms were, but these are similar in line in terms of you're getting access to high quality glass in a smaller, lighter body at a more affordable owner-operator or cheaper rental price, and and I'm excited to see manufacturers do this. The only issues I really have with it are, in the CVP video, there was a lot of focus breathing. I noticed that there was a decent amount of distortion as well, and. I also, I don't know if you read this, but they're not linear in their manual focus, which is insane to me on a manual focus cinema lens. So if you are focusing for the first portion of, of a lens, for example, it's it stays linear until you start to get close to the macro end of the lens or the close focus end of the lens. And then the focus throw becomes much longer. Well, that's going to make pulling focus manually very challenging. So it's not actually linear. Part of it is that one... Speed and then part of it's at another. That's insane, and the amount of which the focus turns and changes the focal uh, the 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 uh, the focusing distance is different from lens to lens, which is also interesting. So if you're setting up your follow focusing motors, it's going to be different from from one lens to the next. If you're getting your hand used to pulling focus manually on one lens it's going to be different on the next one so i don't understand why they aren't all consistent with linear manual focusing on every single one of them and have them be the same degrees like say 180 degree of focus throw from one to the next that's the way a traditional cinema lens would be i think that's very odd and i think that would make pulling focus a little tricky on these lenses Alistair Chapman did an interesting um, BTS thing where he showed some pictures, screen grabs of a shoot he used it on. He said that he loved working with them. I I think he's, you know, I trust his judgment and not in everything, but I think in this case, he's probably right. They're probably great to work with, but it is a little concerning to know that they're not linear. So there are a few things like the focus breathing, the fact that they're not linear, that kind of concern me. But at the end of the day, you're still getting a full set of Cook prime lenses and cinema housed bodies. With external aperture rings and you can buy it at a very affordable price and have a consistent look that's very consistent to the larger pancreas and i think for for what it is it's tremendous it's not perfect and you have to know when you buy these these are these are going to have a a little bit more of a vintage look these are not clinical goes back to that diffusion conversation we have these are not going to look like your g master glass they're going to be a little softer on the edges sharper in the center. They're going to have a little bit of chromatic aberration. They're going to flare a purple flare throughout every lens. So you got to know that going in, but, um, that's what you buy them for is the character, not,
1: not to be clinical, but you have to know that going in. But those are some of my thoughts. I think that's interesting on the nonlinear focus. I didn't know that. I was, I was reading that as you were saying that. Um, and it's interesting because I imagine that You know, your typical distances that you're typically pulling pulling focus from is probably pretty linear, but it looks like it gets nonlinear as it scales to the minimum focus distance. Yeah. Um, And I think the idea is so that you can be more precise in the minimum end, but I don't know in practice how I'm going to like that. Yeah. And I think that's what it's going to come down to. It's going to come down to how how it feels in person. And I, I can't necessarily... I can't knock them for it yet because it might be one of those deals where when you're pulling down and you're, and you're getting really tight into something, I might be thankful for it, you know? Because if you think of, like, I think of any other lens, like, when you get really tight close to the... It's, like, how, how finicky it can be. You can, like, barely move it, and it's, like, you're totally off. So maybe I would really like it. I don't know. I know that, like... I don't know. I think typically it doesn't say like what the focus degree distance is here for your focus. So typically it's like 270, I believe on most cooks. Um, I don't know what <clears throat> it is. Yeah, in this it, one.
0: which is pretty. Which a lot of people don't realize is that's actually pretty long. That's really long. It to pull focus by hand by yourself if you don't have a focus puller. 270 is like imagine almost turning the focus ring completely around the, the lens barrel. Yeah, it's very, very hard. challenging.
1: It is. And I think a lot of people like this is gonna be used probably with a focus puller. If you're gonna buy this set, you, you might be doing that. A lot of people might be pulling a focus I think themselves. Yes and no.
0: too. I could see like I could see like V Raptor owners like renting this for a project and shooting handheld, kinda like the C V P guys did in their video. I could see Which that. Which I think is I think that's part of the reason why Cook did not give it a really long focus throw and didn't make it traditionally linear, is I think they expect people to shoot by hand with this, um, like I could see me putting this on the FX6 and shooting by hand some for some
1: dock work potentially. I could see, I, I would like to, tr- I would like to just try it. If I'm hands on, I would have a lot better idea yeah. what you would use this for. Um, and and like if I had the, I would, I'd like to rent the set for a couple days and just kind of put it yeah. through its paces and maybe get a feel for what it does and, and what it doesn't do well. For me, that's that's where it would really shine for me is once I figured that out because we already know that the look is very close it's not i'm not going to say you're going to get this same exact look as an original pancreas lens you're not going to like it's it's not physically possible but you're going to get as close as they can possibly make it in this price range you know as they can so i think if if it's in the budget and like I'm not going to tell anyone right now to go out and get this set of lenses because there's just, we don't know yet what what this is, who it's really for. We don't know what, like in in practicality, how does this work? I don't know. Like I'd have to, I would have to try a set myself before I could recommend it, but I'm very interested to try them. I for sure will be trying a set of these at some point (laughs) and, and just renting a set. I'm not going to buy them. I mean, maybe down the road or something, but I would definitely enjoy renting them and testing them and seeing where they would fit into my workflow because the cook look is really unique it's warm it is a vintage look it's not it's not perfect and i i I think that's another reason though like you get used to like shooting with the sony lenses and and talking about diffusion like we diffuse it sometimes because it's too clinical too perfect right and there are times where like a lot of my work i could see me using these and I would love to have a set of them. I will say, like, the more you use autofocus, though, with, with photo lenses, the more you <laughs> rely upon it and being able to get really good shots. Sometimes things happen so fast <laughs> with with video that autofocus helps save you a shot, you know, and it, it is hard to run all manual. And I, I mean, I run manual lenses, but sometimes it's nice to have some autofocus capabilities, but I don't know. I'm, I'm still intrigued by these lenses. It's a strange place in the lineup. It's just, you know, it's, it's not like, I think it's like, it's a high enough price that a lot of people aren't just going to go outright and purchase it. Right. No, one's just like, I'm going to say no one people will, but it's not something that it's not a $10,000 set of Rokinon lenses or something. You know, this is a, it, it's $21,000 is a lot of money. So, you have to like prove that they're worth $21,000 and you know, the look of cooks is expensive. We know that, but I would just like to rent them first and see what they're like. And if they're as good as everyone thinks they are, maybe it's a good purchase. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I think for those listening to this podcast, if you don't know the cook look very much, definitely go to YouTube and type in the uh, cook SB three video and watch the one by cook that came out yesterday. It's like two or three minutes long, but they're in the first like Two thirds of the video, they talk about the Cook look and they show they show shots from Cook lenses over the years. You'll see Liam Neeson and some shots. You'll see Robert De Niro and some shots. You'll see Wizard of Oz. You'll see a bunch of other stuff. Kind of just gives you an idea of how long Cook's been around and the types of projects they've been used in. And then, of course, at the end, they show a few shots from the new lenses. Um, and they look more modern because they're shot on more modern cameras and stuff. But I think it's very interesting. The thing is, is like we've talked off podcast. I've got a doc project coming up, a very interesting... Um, Doc project that I'm considering. Well, I'm not considering. I was specifically requested by the production house that I use um, some really nice cinema glass. And the challenging thing is, is there's not a lot of lenses that compete with this for the price. If you go online and you look up PL mounted lenses, or E-mounted lenses, if let's say we're shooting with Sony and we don't want to adapt, and you look at like $30,000 and down, you're either going to find a bunch of individual lenses that cost around the same amount of money as the set that are quality lenses. Or if you find a set of lenses like this for anywhere remotely close to this price or less, they're typically going to be cheaper brands. Brands like DZO Films and stuff, which I'm not trying to knock them, but that's not like like the production house that's like wanting to hire me for this project, this doc project, if I tell them I'm going to shoot this on DZO films, like they're going to laugh at me. Like that's not what they're looking for. They're looking for some like really nice glass for this project, which means you're talking you're talking Aries, Cooks, Zeiss, stuff like that. And there is nothing on the market, nothing on the market in this price category with this big a name, a brand of lens company. It's the it's the first of its kind, honestly, especially when it comes to full frame. And that's probably the most intriguing part to me. I think I've said often that as an owner operator, I think Photoglass Glass makes the most sense and I still feel that way, but there is a world where I could see myself owning a set of these if I really liked them. I think Julian Jari is someone we both like to watch online. He's an FX6 owner op. He has G Master Glass, but oftentimes he uses his own set of uh, Leica Rs and they look amazing. Um, for certain projects. And I could see me using these for brand anthems, like what you were talking about with the dog project. Um, I've got some brand anthem projects coming up that I think this would be a, these would be amazing on. I, w- I wouldn't use them for everything, but I think for commercial work, for brand anthems, for certain doc projects, for narratives, these are gonna be a massive hit. They're gonna be a huge rental item. I bet they re- they'll probably, rental will probably be somewhere between $500 and $800 a week, which is not bad for the set. You could bill that to your clients. And I think this is going to be an interesting, interesting product. I'm excited to, to get my hands on it, rent a set uh, for a shoot, see if I like them. And who knows, maybe one day I'll pick up a set. I definitely think these are the most affordable um, quality cinema full frame lenses ever made, though. That's for sure.
1: I would agree with that. I, and I, like I said, I'm I'm very excited to see what other people can create with them, get hands on myself. And the cook look is just, it's timeless. It's You know, it's well known. And if this can continue the cook look for a lot more people, I think, you know, the the sky's the limit here. And and I think the possibilities are endless now. Once things are inexpensive, I don't want to say inexpensive, but, you know, more affordable than what they were before. I mean, it just opens the door for a lot more creators to to pump out really quality work. Well, the
0: fact that you can buy a $6,000 Sony FX6 and like a four thousand or a little bit under four thousand dollar FX three, so you got like ten grand in an AB camera. You can pair these twenty one thousand dollar lens set on them. You're in like under thirty five thousand dollars, and you've got two legit cameras that can shoot amazing imagery with cook lenses. Who would have thought that? I mean, back in the day, like you'd drop thirty five grand on a, on a single cook lens. The fact that you can get a set and two cinema cameras that are great that match each other is for that kind of price is insane. It is insane. It is an absolutely insane. Oh, there is one more thing that annoys me about it. The 100 millimeter has a different outside diameter than the others. So if you use a map
1: box, you have to change the diameter on that one, which is super annoying. It does annoy me too. I, that, I, I forgot to mention that. It was on my list and I didn't even write. I didn't even say that. So not perfect, but as perfect as it gets for this price. It does lead us to the very
0: last thing. Next week... On September 12th, Sony is going to be announcing, and I may not pronounce this right, but I'm going to call it the Sony Burano. That's B-U-R-A-N-O. I don't know how else to say that. And that is a Cine Alta camera. Now, for those of you who don't know, the FX6, FX9, those are not technically, as far as I'm aware, Cine Alta cameras. But the F5 and F55 that are no longer really being made today are Cine Alta cameras. And that makes me think that the Burano is going to be Under the Venice, but above the FX9, sitting where the F5 and F55 used to sit. We don't have really any information yet. I could be wrong on that. That's pure speculation, but there is definitely a hole in the F5, F55 range where you go from the $10,000 FX9, because it's currently on sale for 10 grand, to the Venice, which is like 40 to 60 grand, depending on if you get the Venice or Venice 2 and how you rig it up. Uh, So there's nothing in between. And that's where I think the Burano is going to go. So, Kyle, what do you think the Barano's going to be?
1: Why do we need this camera? Tell me your thoughts. Okay, yes, I'm very excited about this one. We've had many conversations about this because I feel like there's there's a missing place in the market, but excuse me, between the FX9 and the Venice and the Venice 2, Venice 2 and Venice 2 8K, right? So, with the FX9, it's it has a great sensor. But what really bugs me about the FX9 is we market it as a 6K camera. It is not a 6K camera. Quit marketing it as such. Yes, it has a 6K sensor, but we we downscale that to a 4K to make a really sharp 4K image, which is great. Great 4K camera. I love that camera. I think it produces a fantastic image, but it has a lot of quirks. Like, to get into slow motion, you have to go through the menu. You can't just hit the S and Q button like you can on the FX6, and the FX6 gives you 4K 120. But you don't get that on the fx9 you get what 4k 60 um you that's, can't, and that's with the crop correct correct and, and you can't shoot raw externally without the stupid extension unit right so now and and i'm gonna use the word raw loosely here when you talk about the fx6 because when you when you run an fx6 and you shoot ProRes raw you're not getting the true it's not true raw okay no it's not and the the fact that like the FX nine has the capability of doing it. There's just no external recorders that can do true 16 bit raw out. And when you think of 16 bit, think of like what, like the red cameras and stuff can do. And, and obviously red has a lot of patents doing internal raw. And that's why a lot of cameras do not shoot internal raw, but to have, even if you give me like, you know, what was it? The odyssey seven Q plus or whatever back in the day that you could do with like the FS 700, um, that would give you like, it was a 1080 camera, but you could shoot 4k with that thing. I don't even care if you give me that option, like give me that option and you can shoot raw. I'm not going to shoot raw on 90% of my projects, but the other 10% where you want to have that additional flexibility in post to have raw, give me the option. Don't say it records raw, but there's nothing you can record to.
0: Not unless you do the extension unit to an Atomus and then get this 12-bit ProRes RAW that's not much different than the internal 10-bit.
1: Exactly. And so, like, it takes all this extra accessories to do exactly what the FX6 can do internally. That's just crazy talk. So, but your step up from there is to go to the Sony Venice, right? Which, all in, if you're going to go shoot on the Sony Venice... It is going to cost you, like say you buy the Sony Venice 2 8K. The body loans like $60,000 and then to accessorize it, you know, like the AXS cards, the memory cards, like I'm looking at a six pack of them right now. It's $24,000 for six one terabyte cards. So you're at, what is that, $8,000 a piece? Sorry, not $8,000, $4,000 a piece. Um, So $4,000 per terabyte of recording that's absurd. And then you have to have an extension unit on the back of that to record raw, which it's okay, whatever. Like if you're, if you're into that market anyways, and like your viewfinder probably costs you five or $6,000. Like by the time you have a full kit that you can shoot on with the Venice two, you're looking at probably $120,000. And then you have to license, like if you want to shoot full frame on it, you have to license it. If you want to shoot anamorphic on it, you have to license it. You want to shoot high frame rate, you got to license it, which are all probably $2,400 a piece, something like that to license it. And it's like, that is crazy talk. So
0: it's, it's not in the realm of possibility for people like you and me, not even close. And even as a rental item, it's not really in, in the realm of possibilities for the type of work we do.
1: Correct. And so like, it's, it's an unbelievably absurd, um, to, to even, like, if you're going to buy the Venice 2 8K camera at $60,000 and you can't even shoot full frame, that is unbelievable to me. It's only a Super 35 camera unless you buy the full frame license. What? I just spent $60,000 on the camera. What did I get from it? I mean, that's just crazy talk. So... I guess what I'm getting at here is the Sony Venice is it's a high-end camera. They use it on things like Top Gun. You see it on like you know high-end blockbuster Avatar two stuff like that. Right. You know, or like high-end docs like Last Chance You. You see it on stuff mm-hmm. like this. Those are high-end projects. Okay, Net- Netflix originals, blockbuster movies. That's where you're going to use the Sony Venice, and it makes sense to use it there. I get it. Like you have all of the input and outputs that you would want and it's just a big camera to build it up. But we're missing something between the FX9 at you know $10,000 and a $60,000 Sony Venice. So something in between there is, is great. And what I've been longing for and what I really want is something... I, I don't even care if it shoots 8K. 8K would be a super bonus, and I don't know because it might cannibalize it, but if you look at like what RED has done before the v raptor came out it was the komodo and the komodo was kind of weird because it took like canon bp style batteries and it took c fast cards not cf express c fast cards but it was great because they opened up the possibilities of shooting on red for ten thousand dollars and a lot of people were like, wow, like you can get, I can shoot a 6K camera. Now they didn't give you any like high frame rate options like you would get with a typical RED, but you got like 6K up to 40, you know, 4K up to, uh, it might have only been 4K 60, maybe 4K 120. I don't remember if it shoots 4K 120 or not, the original Komodo. But it was like, oh wow, this is a cool, it's a cool little camera. But like it didn't match up, none of the accessories matched up with the DSMC2 line. So they come out with the V-Raptor. And it's like, okay, now we have the the new 8K camera. And then they came out with the Komodo X. And now all the, you know, things are cohesive. All the accessories are cohesive. You can use CF Express Type B cards across the whole platform. And you don't have to have two different types of cards. I think that's fantastic that they did that. So I'm not expecting this Burano to come out and shoot 8K 60. Because I think it might, they might feel like they're cannibalizing the Venice a little bit. But however, if this thing could shoot 6K and give me a 4K Super 35 mode, this which is really what I want. I want a 4K Super 35 mode. But if it has a 6K sensor, even better. Like the, the FX9 sensor is fantastic. If you give us that sensor, but give us the actual ability to shoot 6K in it, I think that's a selling point for me. And you know, give me a 4K downsampled image of that, and it's gonna be really crisp, really sharp. And also, like, give us, like, a true ability to shoot RAW recording without having to buy an extension unit or an expensive recorder for that. Like, or even if I have to buy a recorder for it, I'm okay with that. But, like, give me the option at least to to record true 16-bit RAW like the Venice does. I can't remember if it's, like, the R7 or something that you have to buy to put on the Venice to shoot RAW and record into it. But I'm fine with that. But, like, give me the option on the Burano as well. Like, I want cf express type b cards like i understand it's going to be different from like my cf express type a cards that i have in my cameras currently but they just can't withstand the speed that you need for cameras like this you know like you can get up to what like eight or 900 megabits a second but you can get almost triple that out of a cf express type b card now without overheating the card and like when i shot on i had the canon r5 for a while and obviously we own uh, a he- red helium 8K. So I'm very familiar with shooting 8K. But having the 8K mode on the Canon R5 when I owned it, and then that down 4K HQ mode, I would shoot that every single day of the week because it looks incredible. I mean, there was really no need to shoot the 8K on the R5. But if you gave me the ability to have that down sampled 4K image, that 4K image was so unbelievably sharp that I would shoot that all the time now if you give us that same kind of ability here say it's even a 6k camera but you give us the ability to shoot a 4k down sampled image from that like the fx9 already has it's a really good image but you also give us the ability to shoot the 6k i think this is a home run yeah it's
0: interesting man like i, I agree with everything you're saying like i was talking about this doc project earlier that um, i'm kind of building out uh, specs for and the, those guys, the production house or the studio that called me, they want to shoot it on They wanted me to shoot it on Alexa mini LF. I don't want to shoot it on LF. I like working with Sony cameras. I already have B cameras for Sony cameras, but what do I, what, what's my alternative if they want to shoot on LF? I'm not going to convince them to let me shoot it on my FX six, but we're not going to go drop the money to rent a Venice package. So what's my other option in the Sony lineup that I can pitch to them? The only other one is the FX nine. So I'm trying to convince them, and this is actually what I'm trying to do, is trying to convince them like, hey, let's not use an Alexa mini LF, let's use an FX9, that's a huge difference. That's where a camera like this comes into play. A camera that punches up above the nine, that can hang with cameras like the V-Raptor, that can hang a little bit more with the Alexa. It's not quite the Venice, but something that's that in between is definitely needed. And so I totally am on board with them releasing a camera like that. I just don't know what to expect. Like part of me thinks they could throw the A1 sensor in it. It's a, it's a stack sensor, it's crazy fast, it has very uh, good rolling shutter performance. It would be a, a beautiful sensor, to. and I love the A1 image. The 8K out of the A1 is tremendous. It's the best shooting camera I own, even over my FX6 and FX3, just because it looks so detailed. When you downscale that 8K to 4K in post, it's tremendous. But you can't oversample the 8K in camera like you could on the R5. Now, to be fair, the R5 overheated when you did that, so it was kind of unusable. <laughs> but on the A1, it's pixel bent. It looks good, like the A7S 3 footage did, but if they could have an 8K oversampled to 4K image in this camera using the A1 sensor, I think that would be tremendous. Um, that's kind of what I would like to see, an 8K camera with the ability to also shoot oversample 4K in full frame and oversample 4K and Super 35 crop mode. I'm like you, I like Super 35 crop, gives you more reach out of your full frame glass and opens up the door to a plethora of Super 35 cinema lenses, including a lot of anamorphic options. I really wanna see a camera like this. That's another thing. The FX9 isn't a great anamorphic camera. Sony outside of the Venice doesn't have great cameras for shooting anamorphics, honestly. I think that a camera like this with higher resolution could open up the doors for some better anamorphic options. And Sony's starting to release some internal de-squeezing capabilities in their cameras now, like the FX6 and 3 can do that. Kind of makes me think that this camera will probably do the same thing. So it's interesting to see, it will be interesting to see what they come out with um, as they start dipping their toes more into the anamorphic world. I think that this camera, to me, is not going to have raw internal. The venice can't do it without the recorder there's no way this one's going to do raw internal so if you have your heart set on that forget about it, it ain't going to happen i don't think it's either going to do raw external in which case it has to be better than 12-bit prores raw because 12-bit prores raw is garbage i would rather use my internal codec 10-bit 42 xAVC XAVCI codec than that it's just not a good format you can't even use it in raw or davinci resolve like, it's just i don't like it What I would like to see is a ProRes 444 codec internally. Something that gives you more than 10-bit, it gives you maybe not raw, like true 16-bit raw capabilities, but that gives you something with a little more fidelity, a little bit more information, that I'd like to see. And I don't think that would violate Red's patent. So if they could come out with a camera that could do some sort of a ProRes 444 or something similar internal, I'd love to see that. It probably takes CF Express Type B cards to make it happen. I don't know, we'll see. Um, but I don't think it's gonna do raw internal. It might be compatible with the F, with the Venice's external recorder, the R7 or whatever. I it, I think I think there's a possibility, but who knows. But either way, I'm thinking this camera's probably gonna retail close to $20,000. It's gonna do 6K or 8K. It's gonna have oversample 4K. It's gonna have 4K crop. It's gonna have more anamorphic de-squeezing options than the 6 and the 3 have currently, because they're just now scratching the surface with that. And it's going to have, hopefully, an
1: updated codec, but that remains to be seen. Yeah, I think, so, the problem I have with the R7 recorder, like, if you want to be able to shoot, you know, raw, is it's going to take those AXS cards that the Venice has to have. So, in order to shoot the raw, you're going to have to have that. I think, I think it's the R7 and maybe that's, I believe it is. But if I have to buy those cards, you know, you're talking $4,000 per terabyte. I don't want to have to, you know, nobody can afford that. If you're going to buy a $20,000 camera, you're not going to buy $24,000 in memory cards. So that would be the problem yeah, I uh, would r- have with real
0: quick. It's the, it is the AXS R7. Okay. it's a yeah. $7,000 recorder attachment.
1: Yeah. And it takes those AXS um, cards.
0: Yes, and it is still compatible with the F55 and F5, which is why I think it is possible that the Burano
1: could have compatibility with it. The other thing I was reading about uh, on let's on the Burano. So the Sony Venice, right? If we're if we're and this is like maybe reading into this too much, but Sony Venice Venice is like you know in Italy, right? You have, it's a bigger chain there, but Burano mm. is a smaller ancillary island just outside of venice oh interesting so if that gives you any kind of information like it's same vicinity just a smaller island outside Mm -hmm. of that nice so what what that means i don't know it could mean nothing but i feel like they would come up with that name for a reason so i i feel like v raptor komodo that's why i feel like this right so you're like you think venice Burano right it's it's just it's not going to be the same as the venice but it's going to give you a lot of really good options still and it'd be a good option to use as if you're using a venice maybe this is a good b camera for you you know you don't have to go down to an fx9 you have something in the middle the f5 and the f55 were hugely successful cameras they were wow i mean people still use that for like espn 30 for 30s today i know years and years and years later i mean like over a decade later right they're great cameras so there's no reason that I mean, if this comes out sub 20, sub 20 grand, that this isn't a just wildly successful camera. Look at the C500 Mark two before that just came out with that, you know, price drop a couple months ago, it was a $15,000 camera, roughly I 16, $16,000 16, camera. Okay. So, and it shot six K 60, right? Or I think, I think it was like 5.9 K or something like that. It was right. like right there. So six K 60 in that camera, you know, internally mind you with Canon raw light. So, if this camera can come out shooting 6k and it has a lot of the features that people have come to know and love with Sony, like you know 20 grand or less, I could definitely see this camera being very successful and very popular because a lot of people strictly don't need the Venice. You don't need the whole Venice, you know I think the other I mean the other thing that I have I, I think would be kind of difficult on this is it's probably going to be like a a v-mount camera so you're going to have to have different kinds of batteries it's going to have to take different kinds of media than what a lot of fx users already own but it's going to be that step up in quality that people are looking for so i i think if if this has most of the things we're looking for on our wish list i think it's going to be wildly successful
0: i definitely think it's going to take the r7 because if the venice the 55 and the 5 can all take it there's no way this one doesn't I think it's going to take the R7. I think there's going to be some sort of raw capabilities through the R7. It's just I'm interested to see what they do in the camera without the R7. Will it just be XAVCI, or will they give us some sort of a a 444, like ProRes 444 equivalent codec? Um, That's really what I'm hoping for. I think there's a dang good shot it's going to do 8K internal with downsample 4K and Super 35 4K, simply because the trends is moving in the industry to 8k i mean the a1s can do 8k the venice 2 can do 8k the v raptor can do 8k i think it would i think it would be a surprise to me if it's not 8k unless unless they decide to reuse the sony venice 1 sensor which could be another option so i think it could have the sony venice 1 sensor and be 6k or it could have a similar sensor to the a1 and have an 8k sensor but um but with way way more capabilities, like oversample 4K and whatnot, and hopefully a better codec. Um, Let me ask you this question.
1: So would you buy it? Today, I don't know, because the FX6 does 99.9% of my work, and there really is no need to upgrade from that. Now, if, if it gives me something... You know, this is it's hard to speculate it without knowing exactly what it is. But if it gives me something that I'm missing today, that I feel like it, you know, enables my workload to be more efficient, and and I can, you know, my workflow rather is more efficient, then I could I would consider it, for sure. It's a consideration. I mean, we own the Helium 8K now, and I considered the V Raptor for a long time. I really wanted the V Raptor, and not because i thought it would make me better but just because i was used to the red workflow and i like red and i like what red red does most of the time except they're just crazy expensive for what you get out of them and there's a lot of building up you have to do to make it a, a truly versatile run and gun camera now sony has really versatile run and gun cameras and if this comes up you know with something that's like Really unique and gives me something I don't have now, it's definitely a consideration for me. Would you, are you more likely to buy
0: a Burano, depending on what it is, or would you be more likely to buy the
1: Cook SP3s? Probably the Burano, (laughs) because I would use it on every shoot, versus the SP3s might not get used every shoot. That's more of a rental item for me. unless i find myself using them all the time where i really like the look and it's just like that becomes the look that you're you know accustomed to and that's what people know your work for then maybe the lenses but which that is like like the guy i mentioned earlier that we follow julian jarry does with his leica r's
0: i mean his his fx6 footage no doubt looks better than most fx6 footage i see online and a lot of that, a lot of it's his creative decisions, his lighting and stuff, but a lot of it also is those Leica lenses do have a different look than the G Master glass.
1: So there is no doubt the glass definitely affects the, what your image looks like for sure. It does. And after you say that, you feel terrible saying a new camera, but <laughs> 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 new glass would probably be better better app for that. But I don't know. I, I'm very intrigued to see what comes out because it's going to be something that's currently not in the marketplace that Sony has been missing for several years now.
0: Yeah, I know whenever I bought, before I bought the FX6, I had the FS7 II and I was really interested in the C500 Mark II. That really had my attention. I just couldn't stand the fact it was EF mount because everything else was coming out in RF, which is really going to bite them in the butt now because those cook lenses will not work on the C300 Mark three, the C500 Mark II. It'll work on the C70. It'll work on the R5C, but it will not work on those cameras. So Canon's got to fix that. But, I've been looking for something from Sony that's kind of similar. I think this camera is going to be better than the C500 Mark II. Obviously, it's newer. It's going to be more modern. I think it's going to be better. I think it's going to be a great camera, whatever it is. I'm interested to see. I'm excited to see. I don't know that I'm in the market for it at the moment. I think that this is a rental item for sure for certain commercial work or certain brand anthem projects, potentially certain dock projects. I don't know that I'm ready to buy that today. I would love a camera like that, like what we're talking about, depending on what it is. But I think at the moment, I'm still going to continue to run the six and the three. And this would be a rental item for specific projects. The Cook SP3s, who knows? I don't know. I could see myself owning something like that just so I'm not shooting my G Master glass freaking for every single project. And yes, you can rent but then you got it; they got to be available, and there's a whole other thing line of things that go there. So, having the ability to rent them or own them and have them available anytime you need them, I, I might be more likely to do that than the Burano. But I think it just depends on on what the Burano is, honestly.
1: Agreed. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. I can't I can't wait to see what the release is. Not that I'm gonna like purchase it right away or anything, but I'm just I've been waiting for something like this to come out for a while.
0: Me too, man. Well, let's wrap this thing up. We set off podcast. This wouldn't be long podcast. Let's let's not keep it an hour and a half, you said. And now it's an hour forty. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. Whatever my time marker is. Hour something. Dude, that's crazy. Time flies when you talk about gear, bro. For sure. Well, I appreciate you having me on, man. Yeah, dude. Um, I guess we're gonna be getting together. We have a shoot coming up. We have two shoots coming up. We have one. Um here in dallas next month but before that we have one uh, closer to my house here in the hill country you're coming to texas two more you were just here at my house and now you're coming back to texas two more times <laughs> potentially three for trout season yeah my wife is like you should just get an apartment down there at this rate <laughs> you're literally gonna probably come down to my house four times this year from iowa that's nuts <laughs> that's i love great. it man Well, guys, thanks for listening to another episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. If you like the podcast, be sure to uh, rate it and subscribe to it. And don't forget to join the Filming with Josh group on Facebook. I will see you all next
1: week. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.